Hey, and thanks so much for taking a moment to visit our podcast. Our mission at Antioch FBC is to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and go to our neighbors in the nations. We want you to be encouraged by this podcast and hope even more that you would come be a part of what God is doing in the community of Antioch. To find out more, visit us at www.antiochfirstbaptist.org. And now, stay tuned for a message from Pastor Matt. This week's scripture reading is Matthew 17, verses 22 through 27. As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon, from whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But, so we won't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. You all probably know that Jesus preaches one of his most famous sermons in the book of Matthew. We studied it back in Matthew chapter 5. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. But this, while it is the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon, it's not the only sermon that Jesus preaches and that Matthew records. And so today, we're going to see the beginning or the introduction of what most scholars call the Sermon on Community. Some have dubbed it the mini or the small or the little Sermon on the Mount. And as we look at the next three chapters of Matthew, we're going to see that Jesus is speaking directly to three different things. Number first, talk about is how we operate as a church, how we operate as a congregation. We'll see that all throughout Matthew chapter 18. And the second thing he'll talk about is how we operate in our homes. We'll see that through Matthew chapter 19. And then finally, how we operate in our work, both vocationally, but also in ministry to the church for the kingdom of God. We'll see that in Matthew chapter 20. But today, we're going to look at this interesting miracle that Jesus performs and a very particular statement that he makes that we're going to spend our time focusing on. So before we get into our text, as we have made our practice, we're going to take just a moment of silence to prepare our ears to hear our minds to be renewed, and our hearts to be changed. And we know this is only able to happen through the power of the Spirit. And so this morning, we're inviting Him to do the work in us. And if you're not accustomed to moments of silence, we know that it can sometimes be an unnerving at times where thoughts may try to bombard your mind. So if you find in this time your mind racing, simply stop and pray to yourself, Holy Spirit, give me ears to hear. 
So let's take just a moment and prepare. Amen. So let's start and look and read in verse 22. It says, as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now we've heard Jesus preparing his disciples already for what is to come and for this moment that is coming in Calvary. But, but let's stop and think about this statement here for just a second. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. It's almost like the butt of a bad joke, right? It's almost like this oxymoron, like the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of man. When you look at that just on the surface, why would the Son of Man be betrayed by the ones He came to save? If you are the Son of Man, you would think the last people that would betray you would be man. But that's exactly what is going to happen. Because man is sinful. Because man is self-centered. Because man here is a picture of brokenness. Yet, God uses this brokenness to praise Him. He uses these sinful desires of men. He uses betrayal to serve His sovereign purposes. I think we need to really just stop right there and remember that. I think we need to remember because I think it's easy when we see and look at the world, it's easy for us to just think, man, it's getting worse and worse out there. And I think we can easily have this tendency to think that there is no longer hope for the world. That the world is just going to hell in a handbasket. But we must remember that no matter how bad things may seem, God is still sovereign over all. And if the cross tells us anything, it's that man's wickedness is still under the sovereign hand of God. And even the most corrupt plan, even the most corrupt ideas can still be used to fulfill the divine purposes of God. That's hope for us. That's hope for us to not just look at what our eyes can see, but trust in what the Bible says and what our hearts have been made to know. doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean we're just flippant. But it means we can have a peace and a hope in the sovereign hand of God, no matter what we see happening in the world. Look at verse 23. It says, Jesus said, they'll kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up, talking about himself. It says, the disciples were deeply distressed. Jesus, again, is telling his disciples that he will walk the road to Calvary. And we see that this causes them deep distress. But again, his purpose in telling them this again is to remind them that this moment, that Calvary, 
will be the foundation of the gospel. And it is a solid foundation that they need not have to worry. He knows what is about to happen. But he's still trying to remind them that no matter how bad it may seem, he's still God. And he's still sovereign. And I think we have to do the same. We have to know that our hope is in Christ and in him crucified. And in that hope are we only most secured. If we put our hope in anything else, it will fail us. If we put our hope in anything else, we will be disappointed. Yet, but in Christ and Christ crucified and him buried and raised on the third day and alive and well sitting at the right hand of the Father right now making intercession for you and for I. That's our hope. Now what we see. Verse 24. So something happens. It changes. He talks to his disciples and now we see that they're moving. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? See, these tax collectors are seeking out Peter to ask him this question. And as we soon will see, Jesus has gone up ahead and he's inside the house. So this attempt is to single out Peter. It's to try to get him alone to try to, again, as we have seen, sort of maybe trip up or trap Jesus and his disciples and their actions. So Peter, as we've seen, being Peter... He gets a little excited, and immediately when that question is asked, he says, yes, he pays the tax. Now, this this temple tax, what we need to know about this, is this is a tax that every pious Jew would never miss. If you were going to be an elite Jew, if you were going to be a Jew of the Jews, you would always make sure that you pay your temple tax, and this temple tax is simply a tax that would be used to keep up the temple, as it simply says. And I think this question that's coming from the tax collectors is a valid question, because if you remember back in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says that he's above the temple. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says that he is above the law. And so these tax collectors are trying to get at Peter and go, We've heard what this guy's been saying. Let's trap him. Let's see, is he actually going to pay this tax? Well, look at the first part of verse 25. It says, yes, he says. And when he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. I love this. Because this is just a glimpse. This is just a picture of Jesus' omniscience. And when we use that word omniscience, we just mean he's all-knowing. Again, he's sovereign. He is over all. So even though he was inside the house, he knows exactly the conversation that Peter and these tax collectors just had. And he knows that Peter has emphatically said, yes, Jesus pays this tax. Look at the rest of verse 25. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Jesus is setting up to teach Peter a very valuable lesson here. And notice how he addresses him. Does he say Peter? No. What does he say? Simon. Think about it this way. 
you're out playing in the yard, and you hear from your mother your full first, middle, and last name screamed, you know something's up. When, she, when Jesus changes to use Simon's first name, I don't think he's in trouble here, but I think he's getting his attention. And all of you, when I said that, knew immediately what kind of attention you were alerted to when you heard Matt Thomas Gray get in this house. He's getting his attention. So Jesus asked him, do earthly kings collect tariffs or the taxes from their sons or from strangers? And let's look at Peter's answer in verse 26. He says, well, from strangers, he says. Look what Jesus says. Then the sons are free. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. Peter, again, he quickly answers from strangers. Makes sense. It makes sense because strangers are the ones paying the taxes to fund the kingdom. So the king at that time is not looking to his son or his daughter or his family to go, hey, you guys pay the taxes. No, they are living in the kingdom. And so it's up to everyone else outside of the kingdom to pay the taxes to fulfill the needs. And then again, Jesus gives this powerful statement, the sons are free. As we have just heard, Jesus foretold his road to Calvary. And see, we on this side of things understand. We on this side of things understand the meaning that he is referring to. And we get it in John 8, 36, when John says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so this morning, if you are in Christ, if you have professed Jesus as Lord, you have been freed from the curse and the power of sin and death. But there's something else that Jesus wants us to see here. Think about it this way. Who is being worshipped in the temple? God? Right? I didn't didn't really set you up to know that you could answer, but we'll try it again. Who is being worshipped in the temple? Right. Who is Jesus? Right. So why would God need to pay the tax to the temple that is solely built for His worship. It makes no logical sense that Jesus would pay this tax. And on top of that, we know from our study through the book of Matthew that the temple is being run by wonderfully upstanding and righteous individuals. No. Quite the opposite. It's being run by corrupt religious leaders who we know are stealing and embezzling from the money source. Individuals who are becoming rich off the gifts that the people are are giving because they're stealing a portion of it and hiding it for themselves. So why would anyone pay taxes if the people in charge of spending the tax money are going to just embezzle and misuse the money? Why should they do this? But even more, why should Jesus, of all people, pay this tax? 
Jesus utters what I believe some of the most powerful words that we have just blatantly skipped over in much of Scripture. And he says, But, so we won't offend them. But so that we won't offend them. And then he goes on and he says, Go to the sea, Simon. Cast in a fish hook. And take that first fish if you catch. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them. Not just for Simon. What does it say? For me and you. Jesus paid the tax. He had no necessity to pay this tax. Yet so as not to offend them, he did it anyway. I think we as a church need to remember these words that have just come from the mouth of Jesus so as not to offend them. Because I think, and I believe we have confused our purpose as believers into thinking that it is our job and our calling to offend those who are outside the church. I think we've made being offensive our goal. I think we've made being offensive our litmus test. We've taken on the banner of if the more we offend the world, the better job we're doing as Christians. But I think that is the complete opposite look that Jesus is saying here. Now let's finish. Talk about the miracle, then we're going to come back to this thought. This fish, this coin in this fish's mouth, it's just another miracle showing the all-power and all-sovereignty over all things of Jesus. The fact that this fish would have a coin in its mouth and the fact that this exact one is the one that Peter would catch when he put his fish hook in the water is not happenstance. I mean, it's a miracle enough that, that a fish, there would be a fish out there with a coin in its mouth. But then all my fishermen in here know that the fact that that particular fish would be the one that bit that particular fish hook that was in the water that Peter would then draw up out of the water to see that that particular fish with that particular coin was the actual particular fish that Jesus said would be there. After a while, we have to give up and go, gosh, he is sovereign. (laughs) He is over all creation. The fact that that would happen. It's a direct miracle of Jesus. And again, this miracle shows us that we don't have to worry about our provision for it's in the hands of the Lord. The Lord Jesus shows Peter that He will provide for us in all things. And I think what this shows us is for us to be ready because it might come in ways that we would never expect. It might show up in ways that we think are silly, that we had no idea were on our radar, yet here's a fish with a coin in its mouth, enough to pay the tax for both Jesus and for Peter. 
But let's go back to this phrase. But so we won't offend them. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. I think the church today has not done a good job of understanding what Jesus was meaning here. And as in most cases, when you're dealing with a particular understanding, you're dealing with a particular thing, there are two poles that people sort of go to, right? That's typically how it runs. We sometimes will call them two ditches on each side. And there are two poles that happen when we hear this phrase, so not or so that we won't offend them. I think some, and when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about the big C church here, not our particular congregation, just the big C church. Here's, I believe that some in the church have taken it upon themselves either to completely ignore sin or to give their own interpretation of what sin is or what is not sin. And this is not what Jesus intended when he said, so we don't offend them. The Bible is our standard. The Bible is our truth. Our interpretation of the Bible and how it calls us to live is not based on what we feel. Our interpretation of the Bible and how it causes us to live is not based on what we think. Our interpretation of the Bible is not based on what makes us happy. We go to the Bible for truth. We do not find our truth and then go to the Bible to try to interpret what we believe to be our truth. The Bible is the standard for us and our living in all things. Whether it makes us feel good or feel bad. Whether we think it's right or we think it's wrong. Whether we are happy about it or whether we are not. All of that is in subject to the Scriptures. That's one extreme. I believe the other extreme is simply to disregard Jesus' statement altogether. Simply to disregard altogether so that we don't offend them, to make it feel like we are vindicated by the Scriptures to be as offensive as we want. And we'll support this. We'll support this by saying, well, the truth hurts. Or we'll support this by saying, I'd rather offend someone here on earth than have them burn in hell for eternity. All those statements do is make evangelicals feel good about being jerks to people. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Now, the gospel is an offensive message. Okay? The gospel does strike against every way a sinner is living and thinking. But where we have completely missed it as evangelicals is we have somehow believed that since the gospel is an offensive message that we get to be offensive people. But that's just as much sinful 
as the other extreme of ignoring those sins altogether. In both of those extremes, it is more about making ourselves feel good about how we are behaving. Listen, if the only thing that the world hears from us, and what I mean by hearing, I mean by what we say, what we post online, anything that has our voice to it, if the world only hears that how we continually say how evil they are, how dark they are becoming, how vile they are, how do we ever expect to be able to enter into a conversation with them? How do we ever expect to have a conversation with them about the gospel if all they see and hear from us is how repellent they are? We've forgotten how repellent we were to Jesus. We've forgotten how we too were repellent to him, how we were vile, how we were dark, how we were evil until he saved us. I saw this reel this week of a clip of a sermon by Pastor Matt Chandler in Texas, and he said this. He said, kindness does not make us complicit. So what we're going to do as a church, we're going to reject the hate of Babylon by practicing radical hospitality. You disagree with me? Great. Come over to dinner. You believe in a completely different way of living than I do? Okay, you're welcome in my house. Let's talk through it. That's not how we've responded as the church. I believe us as evangelicals have forgotten what Paul said in Ephesians. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And what we've done instead is we've made our fight against the people. This doesn't mean that we don't share the truth. This doesn't mean that we don't get our authority from Scripture. But it does mean that we can quit being offensive just to make ourselves feel safe. It does mean that we're kind. How did Jesus begin this section? He began this section by telling them of his walking the road to Calvary. And that if we will become grounded in that truth of the cross, in the truth of the gospel, we don't have to be afraid of the world. Because that's when we get offensive, when we get afraid. That's when we become offensive, when we get a fear of, of those people, and we use language like those people. We think that if we can just keep people at a distance, their way of life and thinking won't infiltrate our 
worldview. But guys, if we are grounded in Christ, we don't have to fear. We can enter into the world knowing that we have the power of the Spirit of God living on the inside of us. Now some will argue, yeah, but that's not how the world treats us. They're pushing us away at every corner. Why would we welcome them in when they are pushing us away? Some would say they deserve what they're getting. I'm thankful I didn't get what I deserved. I'm thankful that Jesus walked the road to Calvary even though I don't deserve that grace. And he didn't deserve that punishment based on how he lived for us. Jesus had every right to stand up and deny the road to Calvary. He had every reason to say, I will not be subject to what is going to happen to me on the cross. But thank God he didn't do that. Because you and I would still be lost. MacArthur said it this way. Jesus submitted to suffering he did not deserve from those who had no right to judge him in the first place. He committed no sin, both outwardly and inwardly, yet he submitted to corrupt and sinful authorities, both religious and political. He took unjust abuse in order that he might better win men to himself. And that last line is the hardest to read. He's the example of everyone who calls him Lord. He's the example. He set the example so that we don't offend. That wasn't a summation of what he was saying. Those words came directly out of Jesus' mouth. And I think that we need to really, truly understand that we can live a faithful life in the gospel without making it our cause to offend everyone who thinks differently than we do. That's what it means to follow Jesus. He told us, you're going to receive the same ridicule that I did. Who was ridiculing Jesus the most in his actions and how he was spending time with sinners and how he was loving people that were unloving? Was it the world? No. It was the religious leaders. They were the ones saying, no, 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 you're being too kind. You're spending too much time with them. Don't you know how they live? Don't you know what they were doing last night and yet you're letting them wash your feet with their hair? The condemnation was coming from the religious leaders, the church, not from Jesus. Jesus said, He came to spend time with sinners. Jesus said he would pour out himself for sinners because that's who needs a Savior. So this morning, if you're here 
and you have felt rejected by the church because of your choices in life, I can't speak on behalf of the whole church, but I can speak on behalf of Jesus. There's nothing that you have done that would send you away from Him. Everything you have done pulls you closer to Him because you need that grace. He pulls you in and says, oh, you think those are bad? You think those choices would kick you out of my kingdom? I came for you. Now, we don't ever get to a point, as we've said, to that other extreme where we just ignore sin. Jesus saves us as we are, but we don't stay as we are. He sanctifies us. And I think we as a church have gotten this misunderstanding that someone has to change and then be saved. Well, that's not the plan of the gospel. In the middle of the worst sin that they're in, they are saved. And that might mean that their lifestyle doesn't immediately change the next day or in that immediate moment. And that's not our reason to, to reject them. That's not our reason to go, oh, I, your salvation wasn't real. No, it's a reason to come alongside them and go, do you believe in the cross? Do you believe in the gospel that Jesus saved you? Good, because let's walk this road together because there are going to be some days that I need you to remind me because I'm going to not believe. So if you're here and you have been, you have felt rejected by the church because of, of your sin, no matter what it is, and we could list them, we could list all the hot button ones. I'm talking about all of them. Because my sin puts me in the same situation as your sin, no matter what it is. And it's easy for us as Christians to sort of magnify those, those ones that we don't struggle with and go, man, if y'all just get over this, then you're welcome. No, that's not how it works. Jesus' grace pours over all. And so if you have been rejected by the church, let me tell you, Jesus is not rejecting you in your sin. And if you are feeling that conviction this morning, that's the power of the gospel at work through the Spirit of God, awakening your eyes to know that He is the Son of Man and He did come and was betrayed by men for you. So if you have never professed faith in Jesus, because you honestly you go, I don't want to be a part of that group that's pushed me out my whole life. Let me just welcome you here and say, no matter what, you're welcome because Jesus welcomes us. But we're not going to stay the same. So don't, don't bring your sin and go, well, I'm okay with this sin. This is how I want to remain. No, that, that's not a, a plan for any of us. We all are called to die to our sin. But you are welcome here. And if the Spirit of God is convicting you this morning, man, I, what an amazing thing that even in the midst of your sin, Jesus would save you. JJ, you can come on up. But for us as a church, for those who have believed, I don't think it takes long for us to look back and go, man, it's easier for me to push people away than it is to welcome them in. It's easier for me to keep them at arm's length because I don't want to get their sin or their dirtiness or all the things that they're involved in into my life. That's not what he's called us to do as a church. That's not what he's called us to do as believers in the gospel. And so maybe this morning, maybe you have professed Jesus, but we need to have a serious time of repentance of how we have treated those who disagree with us. How we have treated those who might be caught up in different sins than we are as if they're unreachable. As if we've done like we see here in the context, we've pushed them in a corner and go unclean. 
I think it's time for the church to get dirty. I think it's time for the church to enter into the lives of the world. And if we come in screaming, look how bad you are, look how dark you are, look how vile you are, they're just going to keep running away. But we know that the power of the gospel, if we come and say, hey, what, we're just as messed up as you are, but we trust in the gospel enough to not leave you where you are. Jesus is here. Here's hope. Because you're putting your hope in all these other things that are not going to give you hope. Listen, there's so many ways that I've had to repent just dealing with this this week of ways that I know that I've just easier to jump into the I'll be offensive category and seem like I'm okay. I have to repent. And I've asked the Spirit, and I would ask that you ask the Spirit, show me how I've done that myself, and show me how to do it differently. Let's spend some time doing that this morning.